of organizational effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today, we're at episode number 106, and I'm calling it Big Projects in Complex Environments. In this episode, I interview Bob Preto, a senior executive at Strategic Program Management, LLC, where he is chairman and CEO. Bob focuses on achieving capital efficiency in large engineering and construction programs and organizations. He's the author of nine books, including the one we will be discussing today, Theory of Management of Large Complex Projects, which he finished in 2015. Before we get into the interview, let me set the stage a little bit. The Project Management Body of Knowledge, or PMBOK, from the Project Management Institute, has set the global standard for the practice of management in projects. As found in its introduction, the PMBOK is expected to be applicable to most projects most of the time. Today's guest argues that the theory underlying the PMBOK and other like-minded guides often fails to deliver success in large, complex projects. In such projects, the project boundary appears more permeable to outside flows such as stakeholder demands, macroeconomic downturns, or risk accumulation over long time frames. These flows can introduce uncertainties that often go unmitigated, making failures in budgeting or scheduling more likely. The episode also indicates that failures are likely when a project's objectives or expected outcomes are poorly defined from the start. And I'm now joined by Bob Preto who's the author of The Theory of Management of Large Complex Projects, which is a book that came out in 2015. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Doing very good, Charles, and good to be with you today. Great. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Why did you want to write The Theory of the Management of Large Complex Projects? So throughout my career, um, I've been involved in various forms with large complex projects, uh, you know, by training, I'm a nuclear engineer, so uh, I began my career on uh, large, complex nuclear projects, and that seemed to really set a pattern for uh, the rest of my career. But I think that nuclear engineering training also influenced my decision uh, to write the book. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, in taking lots of physics back in college, the first thing you learned was Newtonian physics, and Newtonian physics was great. It described the world around us every day. And then along comes this guy, Einstein, and he decides he wants to study the universe or study scale, if you will. And he's a smart guy, and he starts with Newtonian physics, but quickly discovers that they fa- that it fails at scale. So he develops a new theory, uh, not because Newton was wrong, uh, but just because it doesn't work at scale. So when we look, or when I looked at large complex projects, uh, what I saw was that despite all our improvement efforts, maybe the theoretical underpinnings needed to be re-examined. And maybe just going back and reflecting on Einstein for another second, you know, he basically said, if you keep doing the same thing, why do you expect a different result? And clearly, with large complex projects, we needed a different result. And the purpose of the book is to try to begin the discussion. Uh, in that direction, and suggest some areas which need particular attention. Yeah, one reason I was attracted to this book was because it did question the conventional wisdom. 
And the book notes in chapter five that the normal condition of a project is failure and current project management theory does not provide a framework for a success. Can you expand on these thoughts for our listeners a little bit? Yeah, so if we look at the statistics, and it really doesn't matter which of the various recognized organizations you look at, they all say about the same thing, that two out of three large complex projects fail. And here I'm going to define failure as meaning more than a 20% variance against the original budget original schedule. Now, I'm not going to debate that some of these projects proved to be very successful from a societal or benefit standpoint, because equally many don't. So if we look at the current project management theory, which was developed at a different time in a different context, uh, we see a couple things. So first of all, if we go back to the foundational thinking developed by Gantt and Fayol, it was developed building on the scientific method work done by Taylor. It was underpinned by a few key thoughts associated with Frederick Taylor's work in applying the scientific method to industrial processes. These included the notion that larger tasks could be decomposed into a series of smaller tasks uh, sequentially performed, and that the output of one of these decomposed tasks was the input into the next decomposed task seamlessly, and finally that the entire process was well-bounded. Gantt, who interestingly enough worked for Taylor for six years, extended this management thinking, the systems thinking, if you will, into the management of projects. For Gantt, projects were somewhat linear processes, the sum of a series of tasks. They were well-founded, well-bounded by the four walls of the factory with little, if any, stakeholder influences or other externalities. And the owner was likely also the client's project manager uh, and decision-making and authority were highly unambiguous and always present, if you will. So together with Fayol's work, this thinking became the basis for what I will uh, refer to as classical project management theory, and later got codified in the 1969 issuance of uh, PM Bach, uh, the PM Body of Knowledge. But large, complex projects are not well-founded at least not in the sense that Gantt and Fail uh, would have thought about them. Large complex projects are not just a series of decomposed tasks strung together by dimensionless arrows on a Gantt chart. Those arrows are not dimensionless and they're subject to change and disruption. And finally, those four walls of the factory, which provided a well-bounded project setting, have been at least partially knocked down or had numerous holes punched in them creating a semi-permeable boundary where influences from outside the project can now influence it. These changes should really not come as a surprise since the very first edition of PM Bach states that it's intended to provide a management framework for most projects most of the time. So we've lost sight of this and it's even more important when we move to larger, longer duration more complex projects. In 2013, there was an article in PM World Journal uh, that noted, and I'm going to quote here, organizations embracing the whole of the project management body of knowledge as documented by the Project Management Institute could not demonstrate a consistent competitive advantage over those organizations that chose to only implement certain aspects of PM 
or even none at all. So clearly some new thinking, maybe a new theory on managing large complex projects uh, seem to be in order. Yeah, and for our listeners, the PMBOK stands for Project Management Body of Knowledge from the PMI Institute, PM Institute. You've indicated in Chapter 19 that strategic business outcomes become more important than requirements in achieving ultimate success. What do you have in mind here? Can you give us an example? Let me start by uh, first recapping the three big changes that I laid out uh, in thinking about this new theory of managing large complex projects. So the first was on strengthening foundations, and I'll come back to this. The second was focusing on flows, the arrows, if you will, not just the 50 to 100,000 decomposed uh, tasks that we see on large complex projects. And the third was to recognize that projects were no longer well-bounded. So let me return to the first of these changes, the one dealing with foundation. Here there are several areas where current uh, PM theory, classical PM theory, if you will, falls short in my view. So some framework processes are either absent, they break down at scale, or not adequately addressed. So strengthened project foundations have to encompass a heightened and structure focus on owner, owner readiness, not just project readiness. In that regard, three aspects must be addressed. Strategic business outcomes or objectives, SBOs, as I call them, have to be clearly articulated, agreed to, and continuously communicated. The owner's framework processes for decision-making and approvals have to be strengthened and streamlined. And then the project SBOs must be committed to by all the owner elements, including legal procurement, contracts, and accounts payable. Project readiness, uh, as we look at foundational elements, project readiness must be further strengthened along the lines of traditional readiness elements, but also be expanded to ensure SBO alignment and the utilization of big analytics starting at the planning stage. Project baselines must, must include an expanded basis to design, and the foundations of the projects have to further strengthen project baselines by recognizing the inadequacy of current risk models that ignore the observed fat tails and optimism bias in project performance. Risk models have to avoid screening out risk prematurely and provide for Monte Carlo analyses with fat tail distributions, such as Cauchy distributions, not uh, just more normal distributions, if you will. Optimism bias has to be addressed through the increased use of reference class forecasting for cost and schedule. Assumptions have to be captured and tracked because we need to address assumption migration in large, uh, long-duration projects. And the risk focus needs to be expanded to address white space risks. These are areas of disconnect that exist in complexity, stakeholder risks that act on today's more unbounded projects, and change risk profiles associated with data and tool sharing, such as we see uh, in shared building information or BIM models. Now, that's the long introduction into strategic business objectives, but I think it's important. In my career, I have looked at over 100 multi-billion dollar projects, and I've been personally involved in a dozen and a half from a strategy development, executive oversight, or turnaround perspective. The one common failing across all dozen and a half projects was that the project's SBOs were either not clearly articulated, agreed to, or continuously communicated. So let me tell one quick story to make this point 
since I view this SBO failing as the number one large comp, uh, number one reason that large complex projects fail. A and I can tell many more stories. The first example of the importance of SBOs can be seen in a $20 billion plus capital construction program for a major global company. With several uh, years of, uh, of effort and about $6 billion expended, the owner recognized that the program was underperforming. So a team was assembled to look at all aspects of program delivery, spanning from engineering criteria and design margins through global sourcing in the supply chain and construction needs and methods. But importantly, governance, strategy, management, and oversight were also reviewed. The assessment of these governance and management activities involved extensive and comprehensive interviews with the top three dozen managers involved in the program, about half from the various elements of the owner's organization, and the balance from key suppliers, including engineering, construction management, constructors, and key supply chain providers. The interviews ranged from an hour and a half to 16 hours over multiple sessions with the owner's engineering manager. After 35 of these interviews were complete and some clear patterns and insights gained, the final interview was held with the corporate executive with full vertical responsibility, including all client-facing activities, including pricing, CapEx, and OpEx. During this final interview, the fourth question asked, was for the executive in charge to describe in his own words the strategic business objectives he was trying to achieve through the expenditure of over $20 billion. The executive paused and then he said, I know what they are, but I'm not sure how to say them. Now I waited to see what else he might add, made a little reminder note on my list of questions and went on to the fifth question of the interview. About halfway through framing the fifth question, the executive interrupted me. He said, wait, I'm supposed to know the answer to that question. Yes, you are, I said. <laughs> did you ask others that question? He asked. Yes, I did. And what did they say? They didn't know either, I replied. That's a problem, he said. No, that is the problem. Now, I can continue with the discussion uh, that followed, but the discovery that the SBOs had never been clearly articulated was recognized by this executive. One of the key program challenges was a breakdown of an esprit de corps and slow decision-making. It was not that people were trying to go in dramatically different directions, but rather the slightly different interpretations of what was to be accomplished set up organizational friction and built what I call organizational calluses that degraded effective communication and decision-making. SBOs are fundamental, they're foundational to project success, and as an industry, we don't do them well. Now, I can tell other stories if you want, each on a different continent, which shows there's a cultural independence. I might come back to some of those later, but SBOs, uh, in one part of the book, you call them strategic business outcomes, and another part, it's strategic business objectives, and I think you refer to them sort of interchangeably, um, but... I do that somewhat... Uh, deliberately, I, I found that the uh, more commonly accepted term uh, when I dealt with clients was uh, the O standing for objectives. I would argue that as I get to uh, more visionary type of C-suite individuals, 
I'll talk in terms of outcomes rather than objectives. I think for purposes of looking at a new theory of project management, it's a little bit of splitting hairs, I think, at this point. But there is an important distinction uh, between the two of them. And uh, uh, my own preference would be towards outcomes. But my audience usually understands objectives uh, more readily, if you will. We talk a lot about outcomes on this podcast. Uh, maybe we don't have time to go fully into that. But let me just go on and, and uh, get to a, another question. Uh, you suggest uh, throughout the book that a semi-permanent boundary exists between a project or program and the surrounding environment. And I, you referred to that earlier in our talk. Why is that important? So, you know, as I referenced earlier, Gantt and Fayol assumed projects were well-bounded, and they were for them, but today's large complex projects are not. So today's projects are set in a broad, expansive, all-surrounding stakeholder space where the projects act upon this stakeholder environment just as uh, it acts uh, upon the projects. So think about a, a rubber sheet with horizontal and vertical lines at right angles, just like what you would see on a piece of graph paper. Now place a bowling ball, our project, if you will, in the middle of that sheet. What happens? The sheet sags and the ball is supported. But equally important, those grid lines are deformed. Each changes the other. So projects are surrounded by a seething mass of direct and indirect stakeholders. They act on each other, and the behaviors of even the direct stakeholders are influenced not just by the project, but by other stakeholders. So this seething, throbbing, real-time environment sets up a series of flows. These are flows of thoughts, of actions, and of resources. These flows influence the broader stakeholder environment, but importantly, permeate the project in any of a number of different ways. So the project is no longer well-bounded, and a fundamental premise of classical project management theory is invalidated. The flows uh, that permeate the project act not just on some of those numerous decomposed uh, tasks of Gantz, but importantly on those often ignored little connecting uh, arrows. So when you say the, this validates uh, some principles of conventional project management, um, I, I think you're referring to the idea that a project is more or less independent of its environment, and so it, it's uh, kind of a closed system, uh, and the flows are not, not occurring across the boundary. Is that, am I interpreting that right? Yeah, so, you know, I think if you ask most project managers today, they, they would recognize that projects almost at any scale are not, uh, not in a closed system, if you will, not well-bounded. But the classical PM theory was founded on the fact that projects were well-bounded enterprises, uh, if you will. So we can argue the degree of impact from this loss of, of a boundary, a permanent boundary, around projects, even at projects at a, at a much smaller scale. But one of the things that, that I've been able to see, because I've lived in the world uh, and think about the world of large, uh, large complex projects, is that there are things that I can see or have seen at scale that on reflection later on are present, but not as obvious, even in smaller scale projects. So while, while I write, I wrote this book focused really on large complex projects, 
I would suggest that some of the, the conclusions and concerns that I express in the book are equally applicable on, the, on smaller projects, maybe less important, maybe not as easily seen, but I suspect even that may change as we start deploying uh, new, new analytical tools using things like artificial intelligence to more broadly look at, uh, look at our projects, if you will. I think they do apply to smaller projects as well. The book suggests the need for flow management rather than task management in large projects. What would that look like? Are there examples you could point to in that respect? So flow management is an area where I think some of the greatest challenge, uh, challenges lie, but also where I think the greatest opportunities lie. So others have recognized this, and you see a good first approximation in agile project management with its focus on adopting to changing circumstances, increasing collaboration, and responding to change and not just following a plan. But flow management must start with the recognition that the arrows are not dimensionless. So let me use an example. A $10 billion natural resource project uh, located in uh, French-speaking equatorial Africa was to be delivered using an EPCM approach, engineering procure construction management uh, project delivery method. The delivery partners consisted of a US EPCM lead and a French partner who would lead the Africa-based uh, construction management por uh, portion where supervision would be in French. The procurement scope was divided between the two firms. Now the original project execution plan and master schedule showed preliminary and final, uh, final engineering occurring in the US with final documents prepared for transfer to field forces based in Africa for construction. Equipment procurement was linked to overall engineering activities and was envisioned as being undertaken in the US while materials of construction, concrete, steel, things like that, and some ancillary equipment would be bought uh, out of France. So well into the preliminary engineering phase, the client decided for political reasons to execute final design in France, calling for preliminary engineering to be transferred there when it was complete. The project schedule suffered. Those dimensionless arrows were, uh, from preliminary to final engineering turned out not to be so dimensionless. The original plan had final construction drawings only being translated into French, but not any of the supporting documentation. Similarly, the conversion from English to metric units was not to occur until the final stages of final engineering. The revised execution approach necessitated these translations and conversions before uh, final engineering could be initiated, delaying the ordering of plant equipment, and delaying it uh, uh, for a significant amount of time because all of the supporting document documentation needed to be uh, translated and converted as well. So when the final execution approach was changed, inadequate attention was paid to the flow of the project, even if the major activities were unchanged. So in large complex projects in particular, it's important to recognize that the arrows between scheduled activities are not dimensionless. They have assumptions built in, which in effect are prerequisites for subsequent activities. In the particular case, not only did the sequencing of translation and unit conversion change, but on later examination, productivity and work week schedules also changed, all adversely impacting the accelerated delivery of the project. 
So focus on flows and remember that sometimes the arrows present more challenges to the projects than the activities that the project has been decomposed to, to include. So let me return to the notion of Agile for a second. What is required is being more anticipatory than what Agile may have us uh, do. We need to harness evolving changes for advantage. Now, the predictive analytics that AI enables uh, provide some hope here. We cannot be the sailor who's always trying to return to his original course, sailing in a sawtooth fashion, if you will. Rather, we have to be the sailor who's dynamically replotting a new course to the final objective, even as the changing winds continue to blow him off course. Well, your book raises questions about the foundation of project management theory. And briefly, what do you see as the key components of an improved theory? Okay, so I've talked about strengthening foundations, uh, an increased focus on flows, and a recognition that these projects are not well-bounded. The key component of an improved theory, theory, in my view, has to begin with the recognition that classical PM theory does not scale. Uh, in a lot of ways, the purpose of my book was uh, as much about unlocking current thinking as, uh, as it was about suggesting some new directions. So bigger, longer duration, and very complex are not well handled. Until we're willing to get beyond the current Newtonian theory of project management and move to a relativistic theory of project management, if you will, nothing will change. Efforts to improve project management tools within the current theoretical context are good, but not sufficient. Alignment has to begin with strengthened owner organizations. This is where SBOs are formed. Risk tools and modeling have to be expanded. And if nothing else, the current pandemic tells us that nasty surprises live in those distribution tails, which are too thin. The pandemics of project of projects live in fat tails, and we do not adequately consider that possibility. Flows need more focus, and execution methodologies have to become more anticipatory using emerging tools uh, uh, like artificial intelligence, uh, which, which I am very positively optimistic about, by the way. And finally, stakeholders have to be engaged, not managed. I, I have three kids, and I've never figured out how to manage the best I can do is engage with them and hope to shape and influence their thinking and actions. So in totality, I think getting past the notion that current project management theory is the be-all and end-all, I think is, is really the key step. The book uh, really goes to trying to say, not that current PM theory is wrong, but like Newton, it doesn't scale well. And that a new theory of project management, more akin to Einstein's theory of relativity, is required when we deal with scale, uh, when we deal with complexity, and when, uh, when we deal with large dur uh, long durations. I really like uh, your ideas about the SBOs. And I think um, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is coming together. You know, when, I, when I reflect back on what drove me to write the book, I, you know, it was whatever it was, the, the seventh, uh, seventh book I think I had written or something like that. You know, somewhere along the way, I, I, I wrote a book uh, called The Gigafactor, which really looks at the mechanics 
and trying to improve the mechanics of large complex projects. And after writing that, I was very satisfied, you know, personal satisfaction of turning out a major work. But over time, I became disappointed because I recognized that even as even the improvements I felt I had made to the practice in that book were still going to fall short of what was really needed on large complex projects. And that could only come by really uh, rethinking, you know, the, the foundational theories, uh, theory of project management, if you will, not just uh, doing what, you know, what a lot of well-intended organizations, uh, uh, PMI, CII, and others uh, seek to do, which is to strengthen the current practice of project management. If, if I saw us making a steady progression in reducing project losses, I would say they're on the right track and, you know, continue and go forth. But uh, the reality is we've not substantively moved that nail, that, that, that needle rather, in uh, over four decades. That suggests that uh, maybe Einstein was right in doing the same thing and expecting a different result is a definition of insanity. Yeah. Well, your, your book's a fascinating read, uh, and I know you, you have several other books as well. How can listeners interact with you if they'd like to follow up on our discussion? Okay, so uh, two different ways. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, and that's probably the most uh, efficient uh, for me. If they want to reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, very, very happy to do that. I'm also going to do something I usually don't do, which is uh, I'll give out my personal email address. I, I have to warn you, if I get a flood of emails, they may take a little longer to respond to because they'll get buried in a, in a bigger stack. But my personal email is rpstrategic at comcast.net. So RP, like my initials, Robert Preto, uh, the word strategic at comcast.net. Okay, great. Um, I don't think you'll get a flood, but uh, hopefully you'll get some, <laughs> some meaningful uh, contact with some of our listeners. Well, it's been great having you uh, with us today, Bob. Um, uh, best of luck in your writings and, and all of your other activities. Uh, so thanks very much. Thank you, Charles, and I appreciate the opportunity. And that's about it for today. Bob's contact details can be found in the show notes for this episode. You can find that at our website, ageofoe.com forward slash 106. Join us again next time when we'll consider more stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Before I go, let me remind you that my 2017 book, Become Truly Great, is available on Amazon in four different versions, the hardcover, softcover, Kindle ebook, and Audible audiobook. Pick up a copy to see what we've been talking about in the podcast over the last several months and get to know our favorite management approach called Management by Positive Organizational Effectiveness. Again, thanks for listening and so long for now.